one of the things that we talked a lot about today in the groups and in the uh, in the meetings was the challenge that it can be to find what is going to work for us, what's useful in terms of the kind of thinking that we're using. You know, we when I first learned to do metta practice, it was just really just do phrases. Uh, and the phrases, again, have their usefulness, but really to develop the heart, uh, we need to do more than just say phrases. And of course, what we're doing here is we are really using different kinds of fabrication, different kinds of thinking. We're using thinking in different ways to connect into the heart. So, you know, we could just say two phrases or we could say, learn to use your thinking mind in a way that's going to support you in your efforts to connect into your heart so you can find a greater happiness in your life. So what we're doing here is really profound because we're learning to use the mind we're learning to think in a way that's skillful. It's extraordinary. It's not easy, though, right? It's not easy. And this is the process that we're going through, particularly in these first few days of the retreat where we're kind of finding our way. We're kind of finding our way in, into the heart. Of course, we talk a lot about we use the head, we use our thinking mind to connect into the heart. The thinking mind is very important. I always like what Joseph Campbell said. He said, you know, the thinking mind is, is important, but it's a secondary organ. It exists to support the primary organ, the heart. But we need to develop this organ of the mind so that we can put it to its best use in connecting to the heart. So we use thinking, or what we sometimes call fabrication. We fabricate. We fabricate. We just don't think in the way that everybody else is thinking in the world. We're finding ways to think that are going to serve us in connecting to the heart. So very specifically, of course, we're using thinking to remember our wish to be happy, this primary expression of loving kindness. Uh, We wish ourselves, we wish others happiness. This is the expression of love for ourselves and others, and of course we act on this wish. So as we are developing fabrication that enables us to remember our wish to be happy, part of the fabrication that we have to develop is in the service of understanding what happiness is. Understanding what happiness is. So we use fabrication to develop clarity and understanding. It's not enough just to say happiness, right? We really need to understand what we're talking about when we talk about happiness. Now we could just say happiness, that's kind of lazy, and it's not going to enable us to get to the place where we need to get to. The words we use are really important. It's something I'm going to talk a lot about on this retreat. And this is how we change, is through the language. This is what we have, is our thinking minds and our language. You know, so the language that we use is really important. This word happiness uh, is very important. It's very important that we understand what we mean by happiness or what the Buddha meant by happiness, because the happiness that we're seeking is the Buddha's happiness. So, you know, Dharma talks are part of uh, developing that understanding. You know, I'm fabricating all this fabrication that I've gotten written out here. Uh, but ultimately, you have to apply what you hear. You know, this is what the Buddha talked about. We hear the Dharma, uh, we study it, and then we apply what we hear. We relate it to our own experience. Well, How does what he said, which is what the Buddha said, essentially, how does that, how does what the Dharma says about happiness How can I understand that around my experience? How does that relate to my experience? Can I see that in my experience, through my experience? I mean, what we come to understand is what we know by putting things into practice and paying close attention. 
And then, of course, remembering what we've come to understand. And we use fabrication to remember. Well, what did I learn about happiness in my life? What have I learned? What have I learned through my practice about what happiness is? Without this understanding of what happiness is, metta doesn't develop. Metta doesn't develop. The degree to which we understand what happiness is is really the degree to which metta will develop. If metta is expressed in that wish to be happy, we need to understand what happiness is. If we want to develop metta, we need to understand what metta is. How can we develop something if we don't really quite understand what it is? And really, in a large way, what we're talking about here is the depth of our understanding will really determine the degree to which we're able to come into the heart and develop the heart. Over the years, uh, I've really come to see in teaching, uh, and then of course relating it to my own practice, uh, the importance of understanding what this word happiness is and means when we talk about happiness and our wish to be happy. I think it was the first time I ever taught a loving-kindness course. I think I taught a six-week loving-kindness course back at Sufi Books. I don't know if anybody was here. Uh, maybe one or two people, and uh, uh, basically taught loving-kindness meditation and, of course, talked about the wish to be happy and that in developing loving-kindness metta, we are seeking to connect to our wish to be happy. And I kind of left it at that. And a couple of weeks went by, you know, and, a couple, and another week went by or so. And it's like about the fourth week of the class, somebody said, I, I'm not really getting this practice. What is happiness anyway? So, oh, I guess I better explain what happiness is. You know? So the next time I taught the course, which was probably six months later, I got smart. I said, you know, in the third class or so, I'm going to teach what happiness is. So they'll really get this idea of metta. And of course, then the next time I taught it, it was like, you know, I should, probably should do it in the second class. And the next time I taught it, it was like, I should probably teach this right away in the first class. If they're really going to get this, and I could see how, you know, the more people began to understand what happiness was, the more they were able to develop the practice. So when we talk about happiness, we're talking about the Buddha's happiness, the happiness the Buddha found. The Buddha was looking for a happiness that was greater than the happiness that he knew uh, by subscribing to the ways of the world as a prince. Didn't know what he would find, found this happiness that we seek to know for ourselves. He laid out the path. We have to find it. Uh, but he did a lot of the hard work and really the great courage that went into you know, giving up everything that he had and dedicating himself to finding. And not without a lot of struggles, right? Not without a lot of struggles. And you know, the Buddha was somebody, of course, who had a lot of external... Uh, luxuries and possessions, a lot of the happinesses of the world, but what he came to find, there was a greater happiness, and it was the happiness inside, inside. This is where we find this happiness, inside, in the body, in the heart. So sometimes we talk about the Buddha's happiness as being the happiness of the heart. Sometimes we talk about it as being a greater happiness and the idea therein being that, uh, and of course we have to see this for ourselves, until we really understand that it's a greater happiness, we're not going to seek after it, right? But what's suggested is that it's a greater happiness than the happiness that we tend to seek, which we sometimes refer to as the happiness of the world. So if we want to understand what the Buddha's happiness is, it is very important to understand what it isn't. And it's very important to be able to place the kind of happiness that we tend to seek next to the Buddha's happiness so that we can, you know, and of course we can only really do that by comparing our own experience in seeking after some other kind of happiness, in other words, the happiness of the world, with seeking after the Buddha's happiness. And once we actually do those things, they're not ideas, 
You know, we're only really going to seek after the Buddha's happiness until we've really been able to experience it to some extent and pay close attention to what we're doing in terms of looking for happiness and the happiness of the world. Then we can make an informed decision. So the happiness that we tend to seek is this, what we sometimes call the happiness of the world, the happiness that we seek in worldly things. Sometimes we say the happiness we seek in jobs, relationships, and apartments. It really means having our job go the way that we want it to go, our relations go the, relationships go the way that we want to, them to go, and our apartments go the way that we want them to go. Another way of thinking about this happiness is it's the happiness that comes from uh, sense pleasure, external sense pleasure, gain, status, and praise. So it's important to know which each of those things is too, so then we can see how we look for happiness in each of these things, and we can begin to look at this kind of happiness very objectively and begin to understand its benefits and its drawbacks. So we spend a lot of time, of course, seeking out the happiness that comes from sense pleasure, the happiness that comes from sense pleasure. Now, what we're doing to some extent, to a large extent, actually, in a retreat in an effort to begin to understand a greater happiness and have a sense of what a greater happiness is, is we practice renunciation. So we say, you know, for this seven days, I'm going to not look so much for happiness and sense pleasure. So we let go a lot of our normal sense pleasures, if it's the sense pleasure of the television or the movies or the smartphone, etc., the books, the novels, etc., we cut back on these worldly sense pleasures. And so that we can begin to see what it's like when we seek after another kind of pleasure. And if you think about that, everybody here has done some retreats. You know, it's like compare the way you are when you come to the retreat to the way you are at the end of the retreat. You know? It's not an easy path to give up those sense pleasures. I mean, one of the things that we go through in the early days of a retreat is withdrawal from sense pleasure. But invariably, we come to the end of the retreat, you know what, this was a pretty good way to live for seven days. I feel pretty good. Of course, we aren't able to renounce all sense pleasures. There's some that we engage in, like food. So it's one thing that we can look at uh, is our relationship to food, physical food, the food we put in our mouth, and in particular, how we look for happiness in food. Noticing, let's say, the desire around the meals. Noticing how that desire often arises before the meal, maybe quite a bit before the meal. Noticing how we experience that desire, we eat, the meal passes, and then we experience it again and again and again and again and seeing what it's like when we're engaged in that desire. Seeing what it's like when we're thinking about the food. And just simply in terms of thinking, oh, now we're going to eat, we're going to eat soon. Seeing the way we perceive things. You know, perception, in many ways, is what drives uh, the way our minds are. You know, the perception gives rise to thinking. You know, and the perception that we tend to hold on to is that happiness is in the food. The happiness, we find happiness in the food. So... That's one perception. We can test that. And we can also begin to apply some of the perceptions that the Buddha said that we might want to apply. He suggested certain skillful perceptions. One of the most primary ones is is to perceive the impermanent nature of food. To perceive the limited and temporary happiness that food offers us. There's a happiness that passes, and we want more. You know, it's like, notice that. Sort of like, you know, you have desire for food, maybe before lunch. You eat, 
desire doesn't go away, you know, just because you've eaten. You know, it's like you don't have desire never again after you eat. No, it comes up again and again and again and again and again. So we crave again and again and again because the food is impermanent, it passes, and in order to know the happiness that we seek after, the happiness that comes from these sense pleasures, we need to replenish our food supply. No pun intended. So this source of, it's a source of happiness, a kind of happiness that continually needs to be replenished. And that process, that cycle, sometimes known as the cycle of samsara, of birth and death, is very painful. It's very painful. I mean, I see it. You know, certain people more than others in, around different sense pleasures on retreat, and of course in myself, how some people suffer over the food, or some people suffer over the weather, or the room. These different sense experiences. It's a lot of suffering that we go through. Now, and, and there's an inherent an inherent suffering in the process of feeding on food, replenishing food supply. And to some extent, it's unavoidable because we have to eat. But if, you know, I don't know where the broccoli came from, but, you know, if you think about what went into getting that broccoli onto that plate, you know, there is a certain amount of people who suffered. You know, people who... uh, harvested the broccoli, people who uh, built and developed uh, and worked in the factories that turned out the tools that enabled people to harvest the broccoli, the truck drivers that had to drive the broccoli, you know, you know, and the chances are most of those people would have rather been doing something else, something that spoke to their hearts. So feeding is painful, and this is what we're asked to see. Not just feeding on food, but on all food sources. One of the great food sources that we feed on, of course, is entertainment. I mean, it's, you know, it's really, you know, when you take a step back, our culture is such a culture of entertainment. You know, entertainment is such a huge part of our culture, entertainment and sports. You know, it's such a huge part of how people in our culture look to find happiness. You know, and, and you know, most people don't question that. Well, we question that. That's what we're asked to do is question that. Is that the greatest happiness there is? You know, those TV shows that I watch, those things I see on the internet. And of course, the entertainment comes through these vehicles of technology, the television, the computer, the internet, the phone. You know, the internet is a great example. And of course, technology really you know, what, what technology tends to be, uh, the way that it's developed, well, it's two things, you know, in our culture. You know, uh, developing technology in support of building weapons that can kill other people and developing technology that will enable people to crave at a greater and greater rate so the products can be born, bought. You know, the Internet is a great example of that. It's, it's like where technology has taken us, like the rate at which we can feed on the images, on the sounds. You know, it's like from one image to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. What's that like? What's that like? One of the things that we see is that it takes us out of the present moment. It takes us out of the body. It takes us out of the heart. You know, this feeding on the technology leads to a hardening of the heart, a numbing. Perhaps no better uh, witnessed in, you know, New York is, you know, and I've been to a fair number of places. I, I, you know, New York is probably, from what I've seen, is the worst in terms of the invasion of the cell phone zombies. You know, just like walking down the street in a trance so focused on the cell phone. Not in the present moment, not in the body, not in the heart. 
one of the things that I really try to do is sometimes on the, on the subway, if it's a long subway ride, I'll, I'll confess, I, I'll listen to some music, you know, and sometimes it, a good tune is on, but my subway ride is over. It's like, ah, I really want to listen to the rest of this tune when I'm on the street. So now take those things out. When you're on that street in this life, you want to be present in the body and in the heart. That's a greater happiness. The music is good. I love music. It's a greater happiness to be present, to be in the body, to be in the heart. And this is what we're asked to look and see. Is there a greater happiness? And if there's a greater happiness, to let go of a lesser happiness. I told that story pretty recently about... uh, sitting in a coffee shop and uh, watching a young woman on her phone. Uh, and it was a, another good illustration of uh, what the teachings refer to as being slaves to craving. Slaves to craving. We're not free. We're not free. You know, and she looked at her phone for a few minutes and I guess checked the messages and put it back in her bag, sat there and like 30 seconds later went back, grabbed it out, looked at it, put it back in the bag, sat there for a minute, went back, and this just went on four, five, six times. She put it in her bag and took it back out, put it in her bag and took it back out. You know, and I I mean, if she was going into her bag for crack, we would probably say, oh, that's terrible, right? That's not so good either. You know, it's it's the phone, but, you know, there's a great suffering in that. And again, it takes us out of the present moment, out of the body and out of the heart. These happinesses that come from these sense experiences are impermanent happinesses. A number of years ago, uh, at the uh, blessing of the group, I bought a computer uh, for you know the group's business. And, uh, but of course, I used it for my own madcap frivolities you know. and you know I mean I had a dial up connection before this eight years ago so you know once I got the, you know and it was the really up to date computer at the time so it was like oh, I can stream music I can watch movies look at all these images on this computer it's incredible you know now like eight years later recently it's just like I turn it on it takes forever to start up. It keeps crashing, you know. It's just like, all it is is suffering for me now, this computer. The other day I was working on my notes for the uh, the retreat and uh, the computer crashed and I lost like several pages of my, my notes for Dharma talks. So if some of these Dharma talks aren't quite up to par, you know, So these are things that we talk about, you know, the drawbacks in feeding on sense pleasure. But of course, ultimately, you have to look and see for yourself. And the Buddha was really clear about this. Don't go by what I say. Because he knew that that would only take us so far. You have to see for yourself by looking at your own experience and deciding for yourself where a greater happiness lies. It's up to us to ask very important questions in terms of the kinds of fabrication that we're using. Very important questions that we can ask. We have the capacity as human beings to fabricate and to ask questions such as, is there a greater happiness than the happiness that comes from sense pleasure? Is there a more worthwhile happiness? Is there a truer happiness, a happiness that's not so limited and so inconstant? this is the world's happiness, the happiness that comes from these entertainment sources and food, what's the Buddha's happiness? That's really, in many ways, the key question, right? That's the question that we have to ask in developing this practice. What's the Buddha's happiness? Until we understand the drawbacks of the happiness of the world, it's very difficult to develop a wish for the Buddha's happiness. You know? So, you know, we can come here and try to develop this wish to have true happiness... And that's great, but it's only going to take us so far if we don't understand the drawbacks of 
the other kinds of happinesses that we habitually seek. They're going to take precedence, no matter how much metta we do, if we don't understand the drawback of the happinesses of the world. If we don't perceive those drawbacks and perceive that there's a greater happiness, that the Buddha's happiness is a greater happiness. So it's difficult to develop metta, the wish to have true happiness, if we don't understand that the happiness of the world is limited and a lesser happiness. So we could say it's difficult to love. It's difficult to love ourselves. It's difficult to love ourselves as opposed to doing violence to ourselves with the things that we do violence to ourselves with. It's difficult to love others because we want what they have. And we don't want to give them stuff that we want for ourselves. And we don't judge or understand what love is based on what's in the heart. So we really don't understand what metta is and what love is. The next vicissitude is gain. Part of that is money. There's a presiding cultural perception that the more money we have, the more happiness we're going to have, which research shows is completely erroneous. There's no correlation once you have a subsistence level of living around happiness and how much money you have. And you know, I've already kind of alluded to this, but you know, there's an innate suffering in making money and having to make a living, having to make ends meet, having to put food on the table, having to uh, procure clothing and shelter for ourselves and our families. You know, and, and some of that is just unavoidable. You know, some of us have the luxury of doing what we love doing. You know, but there's still pain in it, even for us. I can say for myself. Sometimes we see that in our community meetings, you know, some of the pain around, you know, the budget, the Donna report, you know, as as noble and as uh, extraordinary a process that is. And of course, there's so many other beings, as I've already alluded to, who are doing difficult work, painful labor, you you know, spending hours and hours and hours doing work, that's difficult and challenging and is not bringing them happiness because they need to make a living. And just in general, so much of what's entailed in affluence and wealth is uh, correlative to suffering. Just think of all the destruction of natural resources. Last year, as some of you know, I was in uh, St. Petersburg, uh, Russia. And, you know, it's the, one of the great examples of, uh, you know, the creation of wealth and grandeur at the expense of the suffering of so many people. You know, and that's sort of, sort of Russian history in a nutshell, right? You know, it's considered like the, one of the first modern cities. You know, Peter the Great said, "I'm going to build this city." went to Italy and France and found all the great architecture. And then he went, of course, into Siberia and rounded up the serfs, and over 400,000 serfs died in the building of St. Petersburg. The Buddha made it pretty clear. He said, this is the reason why we have war. People are fighting for what they want, fighting for the resources they want, or trying to protect what they have. We look for happiness in material possessions, right? You know, this is something you have to see and start to question. The happiness that you look for in material possessions. I've told that story about how, you know, a number of years ago, you know, my apartment, all the furniture was starting to fall apart and stuff. So I said, you know, I got to redecorate, you know. And you know, I really looked at it, you know, as you know, something that was bringing me happiness, buying new things, et cetera, et cetera, and I experienced some happiness over that, you know, and, you know, that was five, six, seven years ago, you know, and most of those things I bought are falling apart, you know, and I don't like them anymore, you know, you know, and I started to think, oh, I got to do that again, 
And it was like, there's no happiness in that, you know? The enchantment of that process is really kind of worn off. I mean, I may have to, you know, buy some stuff, but I don't, I'm not looking at it as something that's going to bring me happiness. Before I did, it was like, oh, this is going to make me happy. Well, it did for a little while, but it's a limited happiness. So many of us look for happiness in the phones. You see those lines of people lining up to get the new phone, but it's such a limited happiness, right? So these are the kinds of questions. Is there a greater happiness than the happiness that comes from having this cell phone, this smartphone? It's not great, but is there a greater happiness? Is there something greater? When I die, what is this happiness that I've gotten out of this cell phone really going to mean? Is it really going to mean anything when I'm gone? I mean, those are the real kinds of questions that we have to ask and fabricate. And then there's status and praise. One way to think about it is accomplishment or recognition. You know, I was always somebody, I've got to accomplish. I've got to get good grades in school. This is one of the things that got crashed. But I just remembered it. It's like, uh, I've got to get good grades in school so that I can make something of myself and be happy and be worthwhile as a human being. And I have to accomplish in my career. So painful. You know, the first day of the retreat, yesterday, I was sitting in the, standing in the lobby waiting for uh, all you wonderful people to arrive and offer my welcome to everybody. And I was standing by that. I don't even want to talk about this. I, because you're going to go right to this after the retreat. <laughs> you know, I was standing by that little table in the middle of the lobby. And I looked over there. And I was like, oh, there's all these flyers there. And it was like one flyer another after another about meditation teachers who are teaching programs at Garrison and how great they are and how and I was like, this guy, this, you know, and I was just getting more and more upset and ticked off as I was looking at each flyer. It's like, how come that person's getting that recognition? I never had a flyer like that. Nobody ever made me a beautiful, glossy. You see what our handouts look like? You know? <laughs> I make them on that old computer, you know? So much pain in that. So much pain in that. You know, and of course the idea is, wow, if I had that flyer, I would be happy, you know? And if if I had that kind of recognition. We have to question that. So painful. That's really the question, you know? Is looking for the kind of happiness that we're looking for, is it painful and does it lead to suffering or does it lead to happiness? I mean, that's really what the Buddha is concerned with. You know, in the end, you know, when we're, when we're gone, you know, that happiness that comes from that flyer or that recognition or those accomplishments don't really amount to much, do they? They're really quite empty. They're like mirages. A number of years ago, this is like early 70s, there was like a whole string of movies that really, see, technology and entertainment can have its value that really spoke to uh, uh, this idea of, you know, the emptiness of accomplishment. The first one, three of my favorite movies, they all came out like right after another. The first one was The Paper Chase, you know, how the guy was like, I gotta succeed at Harvard and stuff, you know, and you know, and he had the professor John Hausman. I model my teaching after him, you know, and so, you know. And at the end, he got straight A's, and he just like, so what was it? What did it all mean? Did it was really it wasn't really worth anything? And another one was this movie, The Great American Hero, which was based on the story by Tom Wolfe about a race car driver who was just like striving to be successful, you know, and the whole story of, you know, trying to get accomplishment and be the best in his, you know, and then finally he won the big race and he got the trophy and he said, you know what? Gave like the trophy to some person in the crowd. He said, it wasn't worth it all. It really didn't mean anything. And then the third one was The Heartbreak Kid, the original. You know, Charles Grodin gets married, you know, and he goes to, like, Miami Beach on his honeymoon, and his wife gets really sunburned, you know, and she's in the hotel room, and he goes out to the beach and meets Sybil Shepherd, 
you know, and at that time she was like the top model, you know, and, you know, he went through this whole process of ditching his wife, and finally at the end, despite the protestations of Sybil Shepherd's wife, played by Eddie Albert, you know, who was like really nasty in this, you know, he marries Sybil Shepherd, you know, and, you know, in the last scene, you know, it's like the reception, and he's sitting on his couch talking to this kid, and he's like, ah, this really wasn't all it was cracked up to be. <laughs> The happinesses of the world are happinesses. These things of the world do offer us happiness, but one of the ways that we can perceive them is as being temporary happinesses. They're inconstant, they're subject to change. Pleasure will turn to pain, gain will turn to loss. This is just the law of the way things are. Status turns to disrepute, praise turns to blame. And these things are in constant fluctuation. Recognition so out of our control. I mean, these happinesses of the world are so out of our control, right? You don't know what they're going to put on that table for, for the food, right? You know, it might be something that you love and then it's got something in it that makes you sick. You, know, you may be the greatest artists. We have a lot of artists here. The greatest artist in the world and nobody may look at one of your paintings. I mean, most of the great painters you know, were never even recognized. You know, Van Gogh, Gauguin, Vermeer, Monet, Cezanne, a little bit maybe, at the very end of his life, the greatest painter of all time, Paul Cezanne. Nobody even hardly knew who he was. They laughed at his paintings. There's, there's stories about how people went and they laughed. What is this nonsense? You know, and I think a lot of those painters, of course, weren't doing it for the recognition. They were doing it out of the love in their hearts. One of the great suttas, teachings of the Buddha, is the sutta on the world being swept away with practitioner says, the world is swept away. It does not endure the things of the world. These are basic laws. The world is without shelter, without protection. All of these worldly things, there's no way to protect them. The world is without ownership. One has to pass on, leaving everything behind. The world is insufficient, insatiable, a slave to craving. You know, we talk about this stuff a lot because we have to. You know, I mean, this is the kind of fabrication that we have to develop, you know, and, and we talk about it a lot. In other words, I talk about it a lot, you know, and the idea is, you know, and I know it's true for me. The more I read and hear Tom Jeff and read and think about it, the more I start to look and see and pay attention to my own experience. And I see, you know what, the world is swept away. I'll be damned. But that doesn't happen like that. It happens by hearing these fabrications, these thoughts, engendering these thoughts on our our own and relating it to our own experience and seeing. And gradually, little by slowly, we understand that the world is swept away. And when we let go of the search for happiness in worldly things, we experience happiness just by letting go of that search because we experience freedom. We experience freedom from craving. We're no longer slaves to craving, to the inevitable craving that comes from looking for happiness in conditioned things. We experience a quality of ease and well-being, which is an aspect of happiness. May I have ease and well-being. Looking for happiness in worldly things, by its nature, leads to craving, leads to suffering, and this suffering blocks the heart the way the clouds block the sun. Happiness is there, but we can't see it because of our suffering. Reminds me of a, I actually thought about this one, you know, a George Harrison song, but I I don't want to say what it is because you guys will be humming it the whole retreat. (laughs) When we let go of the search for worldly things, we see happiness is right there. It's right there. We've been looking outside of ourselves, but it's right here. It's right there. It's right there. It's in the heart been there all along. And the Buddha didn't often describe this happiness of the heart. You know, he gave us some benchmarks. 
know, the teaching to Bahia. He explained happiness of the heart like this. What it, the other, you know, and I kind of, he gives a couple of these things so that you can begin to detect it, to begin to fabricate and to begin to start to understand what it is. And he said, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the seen, there will be only the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you there is only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sense in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, there is no you in terms of that. When there's no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. So it's not like, I want to hear this, or I don't want to feel this. It's just hearing, feeling, tasting, touching, smelling. You know? And we just kind of let go of the dependence on all those conditioned things, the sounds, the tastes, the smells, the thoughts, and we turn to what's inside, the happiness inside. So this happiness of the Buddha transcends birth and death transcends coming and going. It doesn't die. It's said to be an unconditioned or deathless happiness. I thought about this a lot over the last year or so as I turned 60 and experienced some significant deaths of people in my life you know, and really started to think, you know, so much of my life I've strived and continue to strive to acquire certain external sense pleasures and gain and recognition and accomplishment, you know, but I'm going to die, you know. Is there any value in those things considering that I'm going to die? Is there any point in striving after those things considering I'm going to die and those things are all going to be gone? When I'm gone, will, you know, where will those pleasures be? Where will that recognition be? You know, when I die, you know, Will it really matter if I had a flyer on the table at Garrison? We spent so much time, worked so hard for these worldly things. So really starting to ask, you know, over the last year, of course, I've asked many times and for a long time in my practice, is there something that transcends birth and death? Is there a happiness that transcends birth and death? You know, you don't really have to answer that question, you have to ask that question. The heart knows. The heart knows. That understanding is beyond your comprehension because all we know is what we know. And what we know is, well, people say happiness is... So we ask those questions and we turn towards the heart. The heart knows if there is a happiness that's greater than the happiness that comes from conditions. If there is a happiness that transcends birth and death. I can say unequivocally that there is. The Buddha could say unequivocally there is. The teachings say there is. I've experienced it. I know what that happiness is. I don't experience it all the time, but I know what that happiness is, and I can compare it to the happiness of the world. We have to, each of us, know that happiness. And it really comes by asking the questions. The answers are in the heart. But there is this happiness that when we experience, there's no sense of time and space. Transcends time and space. Transcends those measurements. Transcends birth and death. It's really a hard thing to explain. I mean, the Buddha tried to explain it using metaphors. He says, where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing. There the stars do not shine, the sun is not visible, the moon does not appear, darkness is not found. And when a sage, a Brahmin, through sagacity, wisdom, has known this for himself, then from form and formless, from bliss and pain, he is freed. You know, Bahia, after he was given that teaching, you know, in, only, you know, in the scene, there is only the scene, and the heard, you know, he'd said that he became fully awakened when he heard that teaching. You know? But that's sort of like what we do, right? You hear that teaching, you incline to it, you ask the questions, and you begin to incline towards what awakening is. 
right? You begin to sense that, those intimations. You turn towards the sky and you look at the clouds and there starts to be a break in the clouds. But if you don't turn to the sky and look up there, then it's said that after the Bahia became awakened, he walked down the road and was hit by a runaway cow and died. There's certain interpretations of that, but the interpretation that I like is that it was a happiness that transcends birth and death. True happiness is always there. It's always there. It's part of the ever-present truth. Akaliko, part of the ever-present truth. You know, and again, I'm kind of pointing out some things that we can look for as we make this exploration of our wish to be happy and the consideration that we have to give to what happiness is. You know, this true happiness is there. You know, we can know it in the silence and the stillness. And we know it in the body. This is why the body is so important. You know, after years and years of practice, it just more and more I understand the importance of the body because happiness is inside. You know, I always would hear, well, happiness is inside, right? Everybody's heard that. Well, what does that mean? It's there. It's inside the body. It's in the body. So again, you know, these are markers, things to look for, but these are things that you have to know for yourself. The Buddha didn't talk a lot about what true happiness was. You know, because he kind of knew that if he talked too much about it, then you wouldn't go looking for it. That's just kind of our nature, right? But when we know what it is, we begin to wish for it because we know it's a greater happiness. And we've all known it. You know, we may have known it when we were a child, the freedom of being a child and not craving and just being with hearing, tasting, tell, smelling, touching. That's why that reflection, which again doesn't work for everybody, is useful. But we have to incline to knowing that true happiness. I mean, that's the third noble truth, that there is a happiness that transcends birth and death. So again, asking the questions, have I known this happiness? What is this happiness? The problem in many ways is that we just don't ask the questions. We don't think about it. We don't think about true happiness. You know, we think about a lot of stuff, jobs, relationships, apartments, sense pleasures, food, entertainment. Well, our task as Dharma students is to start thinking about true happiness, start asking the questions, what is it? Is it there? Is it always there? Is it here right now? In many ways, our problem is we think about the wrong things. And that's what we're trying to do, is to change that and start thinking about things that are going to lead us towards happiness. And in a lot of ways, you don't have to stop chasing after the happiness of the world. Just stop thinking about it so much. And try thinking about something else. Try thinking about the happiness of the heart. And if you start thinking about the happiness of the heart and asking and turning toward it, the heart will know that there is a greater happiness. Once you know that there's a greater happiness, you'll give up the happiness of the world. We just don't know. It's like, you know, for years I never went anywhere, I never traveled. All I knew was New York, you know? It's like I went to other countries and other cities, and it's like, wow, there's a lot of great places. Some of them are even better than New York. Who knew? I never would have known unless I went to those places. So when we really touch into true happiness, we begin to abandon the ways of the world because we know there's a greater happiness. Give up a lesser happiness for a greater happiness, or as Tan Jeff likes to say, we trade candy for gold. So, this is how we connect to the heart. We connect head to heart by asking these questions, by turning ourselves in the right direction. 
You know, if we turn ourselves in the right direction, we'll find our way. We're just, our biggest problem is we're not turned in the right direction. As we turn to the heart, we begin to know what true happiness is. Now, of course, people are probably saying, ah, I could never find true happiness, or maybe he can do it, or maybe the person sitting over there who looks like they've been really doing great meta practice today could do it, but I can't do it, or that's the doubter. You know, that's Mara. Mara came to the Buddha and said the same thing. So, are you kidding? You left the princely life? Are you kidding me to look for it? There's no... You know, the Buddha said, I see you, Mara. Ah, Mara said, the Buddha saw me. And basically, just see the doubt and see it as doubt. Don't give in to it. If you see it, it's not a problem. So, as we begin to fabricate in terms of cultivating our wish to be happy, you know, we begin to align ourselves with true happiness. You begin to start to get intimations of that just in the thinking. One of the things I was seeing today and you know you know and I've been seeing lately is, you know, all these thoughts in the mind that are so painful about my worldly concerns and the things in my life, and there's so much pain there. And then if I turn to May I be happy. I have a wish for happiness. Is there a true happiness? There's ease there. There's a sense of well-being just in in fabricating something else, just in making that fabrication because, of course, it turns me to the heart and to to true happiness. So, you know, for myself, I've just come to see such a refuge just to fabricate in that way. It's like if I want to get out of pain, and that's what I, over the last year, that was one of my main practices when I suffered so much around the deaths in my life and things like that you know, uh, was just continuing to ask, is there a greater happiness? Is there a greater happiness? Is there a true happiness? You know, just asking in the heart, no. The heart, no. That was the way I found my way out of the darkness, was by asking those questions. Is there a way out of the darkness? So our practice is replacing the wish for happiness of the world with a wish for happiness of the heart. We remember our wish to be happy. It's right there in the heart. We connect to it and we act from that place. We act in service, in the service of our wish to be happy. As we're doing in being here, we're acting in the service of our wish to be happy. We have a wish to be happy and we're taking action in support of that wish to be happy by being here. So sometimes we need to remember that's what we're doing when we're here. That we're on this path and being here, and this is a path of happiness. I mean, this is a really important and useful perception to have, just to remind yourself that this path is a path of happiness. You know, the heart knows it's true. So when you assert that perception, the heart knows it's true. You know, and you begin to move towards that happiness and align with it. The problem is we forget what path we're on. It's kind of like we're on the subway. You know, like, where am I? Where am I going? Oh, I'm on the F train. I'm headed out to Brooklyn. You know, we forget where we are. We forget the path that we're on. We're on this path, but we forget. Sometimes today you probably like, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? What's this? It's like, pull back. I'm on the path to true happiness. This is a path to true happiness. Let's just close our eyes for a minute.